You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Freedom Pact. My conversational partner today, um, I hope he doesn't mind me saying, is widely regarded by journalists and alike as the world's most influential living philosopher. Peter is the founder of The Life You Can Save, an organization based on his book of the same name. Um, you may know Peter from works such as Animal Liberation, Practical Ethics, The Most Good You Can Do, Ethics in the Real World, and many more. Peter, thank you so much for joining me on the Freedom Pack podcast today. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure, sir. So I wanted to start off, um, I mentioned there, uh, life you can save. In the preface of the latest edition, you ask the reader to consider uh, if they are drinking a, a bottle of water or a, a can of soda while reading the book, offering that if they are, then they probably have money to spend on things they don't need when there are 700 million or so people struggling to live every day on less money than that product would cost. Now, when I read that, I, I realized that that's something I would have never thought of unless you pointed it out to me in the book. So why do you think that we are so ignorant or unaware of this kind of thinking without someone like yourself having to point it out to us? Well, I think in a way that's, that's the role of, of philosophers and thinkers, to stand back a little bit from our everyday life and, and patterns of living and patterns of consumption and maybe contrast them with others that we're not so aware of in our daily life uh, and then ask questions about them. So, um, I, as I say, I think we're not aware of this because this is the society we're brought up in. This is what all our friends do and our family does. So we just take it as absolutely normal. And people living in extreme poverty, we don't see. I mean, occasionally they may come across on something that, you know, like television or something that a video that some friend refers us to. But you know, if you're living in an affluent country, if you're living in the United Kingdom or Australia or the United States, essentially there aren't really people in extreme poverty as the World Bank defines it in those countries. Um, there are certainly people who are relatively much poorer than, than average people in those countries. But um, you know, just on what the welfare state provides in the United Kingdom, you're already significantly above that extreme poverty line. Plus, of course, you have uh, free healthcare, you have safe water that comes out of the tap. Um, if you're a child, you will be able to go to school free. All of those things that you know we just take for granted in these countries um, that are not everybody in the world has. I think... Long-time uh, listeners of this show will be familiar with um, the drowning child analogy. We've, we've, we've pondered it on the show before with, with other guests who have brought it up. Um, but on that topic, why, if you can explain to our audience, why is suffering that happens right before our eyes more or seemingly more important to us? And is there any moral difference between something that happens 
right in front of us that we can instantly impact and something happening on the other side of the world? Well, to answer the first question, uh, why is it more important to us? You have to realize that, that we're the products of, of millions of years of evolution um, as evolving as social mammals all of this time and eventually evolving as human social mammals. And during all this time, we lived in relatively small groups. You know, um, our closest ancestors, chimpanzees and bonobos, still live in relatively small groups. And uh, some humans do as well. And uh, people who study this believe that probably for most of our evolutionary history, humans lived in groups of maybe 150 or so, but not a lot more. So you got to see everybody. You got to know every, every face that you're with and you relate to those people. And because we're social mammals, we respond to people's appeals for help if they're members of our social group. So when we see a child in front of us, even if that child is not actually somebody we know, I think we still have that innate response of here's somebody I see and they're in need and I could help them. So you know, we have a strong, not necessarily always acted upon, we have a strong impulse to help. But we never, during all of that evolutionary past, um, had the opportunity to save people who were distant, who we couldn't see. Um, so we just didn't have the means to do that. Now, very recently, in the last century or two, we have the ability to do that. But, you know, we haven't had time to evolve any kind of emotional response to it. Um, we have this more intellectual response, uh, if you like, a, a rational understanding of the needs of others and of our ability to help. But, you know, morality for most people is a mix of this emotional impulse and the rational uh, layer that, you know, we will pause and reflect. And the rational layer without the emotional impulse is for most people relatively weak, not for everybody, but um, you know, compared to the strength of the emotional impulses, it's quite often weak. So I think that's the explanation of why we don't feel the same about knowing that there's a child somewhere else whose life we could save as we would if the child was in front of us. Now, do mm -hmm. I think that that makes a moral difference, that psychological difference? Mm, yes and no. Um, I think because we understand why people act the way they do, um, we shouldn't sort of really heavily blame people for preferring to save the child in front of them or being more likely to save the child in front of them than to save the distant stranger. Um, but if we ask the question, is it wrong not to save the distant stranger? I think the answer to that has to be yes. If you can you know, quite easily save that distant stranger at the same cost as the cost of replacing the clothes when you jump into the pond and save, save the child, then I think it's, it's, it's wrong not to do so. You know about that and you have the assets to spare. Um, but as I say, the question of praising and blaming people is somewhat separate because it has to take into account of what we regard as uh, normal human behavior. Yeah, for sure. So in, in that sense, so I, I've, I mean, we talked, we posed this question before on the show. If I'm walking down the street on my way to work and I reject a, a, a charity appeal, um, you know, it, it seems legitimate, but I just, 
I say I haven't got time and I carry on walking. You know, I, I don't want to spare the, that few pound instantly. But then on the way to work, I maybe stop at uh, a local coffee shop and buy a overly expensive coffee to perk me up on my way to work. Is that a moral? Well, um, I tend to brush past the charities that wave the can under my nose on the street okay. because I don't know enough about them. You know, you said it seems to be legitimate. Maybe it is legitimate, but legitimate is not enough for me. Mm. Um, I don't want to give my money just to any charity that's not actually a fraud, a scam, a ripoff. I want to give my money to the charity that will do the most good with uh, what I decide to give. And that you can't tell unless you can pull up some research that's been done on it by other people because, you know, you don't have the time to do that. It, it's, it's a very serious study. So, you know, fortunately, there are organisations that can do that research and, and organisations that can aggregate research from different uh, think tanks that do it. So The Life You Can Save, which, as you mentioned at the beginning, is a charity that I founded, is one of these aggregators of research that others do. And uh, so we recommend uh, about 20 highly effective charities. And I recommend that you, you give to those, not to the ones that you don't know very much about as you walk down the street. But um, let's get back to your highly expensive coffee. Um, look, you know, maybe you really need this coffee to perk up and work well during your office day. And if you don't work well, you're not going to keep your job or you're not going to earn as much or something like that. So, you know, I'm not going to say you can't have the coffee. But, um, but there, you know, there may be some other luxury that you spend your money on that in no way is going to improve your ability to earn money and, and to give. And, you know, maybe then, you, you know, yeah, you could think about that. And I, again, I'm not saying you have to give up every luxury, but if you're not giving something significant to uh, a highly effective charity, then, uh, and you are spending money on things you don't really need, you, you know, you're above that level of income where you only can just cover your, your real needs. Yeah, then I think you, you are doing something wrong. For our audience who are, completely new to this this topic and this kind of thinking can you define effective altruism and sort of speak on its marriage between head and heart yeah sure so effective altruism is a, a relatively new movement um began about a dozen years ago and uh it you know to some extent draws on what i've been saying just now and some of these things i had said in earlier articles going back more than 40 years. Um, that is that uh, we, we can help people who are uh, in extreme poverty and in great need at very little cost to us. Um, there will be some financial cost, but I would argue that in terms of real cost, that is in terms of our life being worse because of it, um, there's either you know, practically none or none, or sometimes even you know, it's positive because you feel happier about knowing you're doing good. So um, that's the sort of argument for being altruistic. But what um, happened uh, in the early 2000s is that some people started doing some real research on how to do the most good. And um, start, <coughs> excuse me, um, started um, looking at at how to get the best value for what you're doing. So 
I think uh, then we got the effective part of altruism coming in. Um, this idea that you want to get the best value for whatever whatever you do that's altruistic, which which may be donating money, um, it might be your choice of career. You might say, I want my, you know, if you're at the point where you're choosing a career, you might say, I want my life's work to be doing good for the world. So, you know, that's another thing you have to think about, which career is going to do the most good for the world. Um, it might be that you're going to volunteer some hours each day to a, a non-profit organisation. And again, you need to think about which one will do the most good. So that's what effective altruism is, is all about. It's about bringing this kind of, uh, you know, if you like, somewhat cost-benefit kind of thinking into your altruism. Um, and as you suggested, so that brings together, I think, for many people, both the head and the heart, because it's, it's the heart that makes us look at the needs of others and say, oh, this is, this is terrible that people have to live in such desperate poverty and that they you know, may not be able to have their child treated if she's ill because they can't afford to pay for the doctor and there's no free health service in the area. Um, or they can't afford to educate their children so they don't send all their children to school. Um, so, you know, if, if that appeals to your feeling that this, there's something bad about this and you'd like to help these people, then the head has to come in and saying, yes, and try to help people in the most effective way so that whatever resources you've got, they will do the most good, help the most people. I'd love to give people listening right now um, a popular example that they could maybe you know, relate this to. So where does someone like Bill Gates rank among the effective altruists that our world has to offer? Is he someone that would be right at the top in your opinion? Uh, yes, I, I rate Bill Gates very highly um, because, you know, sure, he has a vast amount of money and uh, sure, even after he's given, um, I'm not sure what the current figure is, it's at least $30 billion um, and it, that's probably a bit out of date and I think he's giving more and certainly my understanding is that he and Melinda Gates plan to give most of their wealth um, to the Gates Foundation eventually. So he'll be giving a very large amount of money. Um, and the other thing is he's giving it effectively. He has thought hard and he is continuing to think hard about how to do that most effectively. Uh, you know, he stepped down from running Microsoft to uh, run the Gates Foundation and uh, get together a lot of people to help him think about how to do this best. And, and mostly what he's doing is related to global poverty and is related to global health. Um, he says that uh, he was shocked to discover that uh, a, a virus that causes diarrhea, it's called the rotavirus, um, kills uh, you know, millions of children each year when we know how to cure this and we also know how to prevent it by providing safe drinking water. Um, so the Gates Foundation set out to do this. Um, it also vaccinates children against measles. Again, these are, these are you know, not rocket science, we know how to do it, but we just hadn't put the resources into doing it. Um, and, you know, he's also then trying to find a vaccine for malaria, which is a more difficult scientific problem. Um, but so I think he's thought hard about how to be really effective. So I rate him highly, both because of the quantity of money he's given and the effectiveness. Now, somebody might say, look, even after Gates has given 30 billion, 60 billion or whatever, 
he hasn't given, you know, he's still a billionaire probably. If not, he's a multi-multi-millionaire, sure. Um, so you might say, so, you know, isn't, shouldn't we really be admiring uh, the person who's living on the old age pension um, and yet still finds the ability to give something to an effective charity uh, each week? Um, and yeah, there's a sense in which, you know, we do admire that greatly. Um, but, you know, you have to take account of the fact that, that Gates has resisted a world in which says billionaires lavish their money on all sorts of things that don't do any good um, and don't usually spend much of their time or much of their money on trying to do the most good they can. Who are some other examples of... Um, you know, effective altruists that may come to mind other than Bill Gates that you could offer us? Yeah, so there's certainly a lot and, and they're not all super wealthy um, like that. So uh, I've talked about quite a few in a, a, a book I've um, written called The Most Good You Can Do. Um, and so give some examples. Uh, I got an email out of the blue a few years ago from somebody who had taken a moral philosophy class in which the article we were talking about, uh, famine, affluence, and morality, it's called the one that has the drowning child in the shallow pond, and um, came up for discussion. Um, and somebody, and they, as well as reading that, they read an argument that said, well, you know, it can't be the case that we have an obligation to do good if it doesn't really harm us much, because if that were the case, then we should all be giving away one of our kidneys because people die on waiting lists while they're waiting for kidneys. Um, so this was supposed to be a refutation of the argument, trading on the assumption that, you know, obviously so it can't be the case that we have to give away a kidney. But uh, this student, uh, Chris Croy is his name, um, thought this through and said, well, yeah, you know, if it's really true that it doesn't hurt, doesn't harm you much to give away a kidney and it saves people's lives, that is what we should do. And he studied up on this. He found that the risks of donating a kidney are actually very, very small um, and decided that that's what he would do uh, and did donate a kidney to a complete stranger, not to a friend or family. Uh, just went to a hospital, persuaded them that he was serious um, and donated a kidney. And he's not the only person who's done that. I, I know others who've done that as well. So, you know, that's a very powerful form of altruism. I have to admit, you know, I'm I don't have any problems giving away significant amounts of money, but I still do have two kidneys. Um, probably I'm getting to the age now where nobody would really want one of my kidneys, but um, uh, you know, I, I could have done this much younger and, uh, and I didn't. So you know, I really admire people who are prepared to do that. We, we mentioned Bill Gates there and, and billionaires. I often see this argument come up in um, podcasts, debates lately, and it's this question, is it immoral to be a billionaire and hold so much of the world's wealth when others are in poverty? Or in your opinion, is it does it boil down to that case-by-case -case analysis of what they do with the money? Yeah, I think you have to distinguish two separate questions, right? One question is, should we have an economic system um, and a tax system in which it's possible to become and remain a billionaire? And I think there's a very good case for saying, no, we should not. We should have different kinds of, of uh, economies and different kinds of tax systems that make sure that wealth is more evenly distributed. So that's, that's one question and that's my answer to that. But 
a separate question is, suppose we don't have a system that makes it impossible to become a billionaire. Suppose we have a system which in fact means that there are quite a few billionaires and some who are you know, billionaires 10 times, even 50 times, I think Jeff Bezos may be getting around 100 times um, over. So um, in that situation, is it immoral to be a billionaire? No, I think the answer is it depends on what you do with your billions. And if what you do with your billions is think carefully about how best to use them to do the most good in the world, then you're not doing anything immoral. Um, and I think Bill Gates has done that. Um, uh, there are others, um, for example, uh, Dustin Moskowitz and Carrie Tuner are a couple who are billionaires because Dustin Moskowitz was one of the co-founders of, of Facebook, and he's also gone on and with other computer startups that have been successful. So they started a, a, a foundation called Good Ventures, and they're funding a project called Open Philanthropy, which is doing research on this question of how can we do the most good with our resources? So basically the effective altruism question. Um, and you know, that's a, a very serious question. There's lots of research that you can do to find the answers and to think about the answers. So they are giving away lots of money. As far as I know, they've still got a billion or more. So they're still billionaires. Um, but um, I think they're going about it the right way in terms of getting rid of that, um, doing the most good with it. Uh, and I'm sure they'll end up um, not being billionaires anymore because they've given away uh, the great majority of, of what they have. Uh, a guy you mentioned there, you mentioned Jeff Bezos, obviously the, the, the richest man on the planet holds, you know, most of uh, most of the wealth, but obviously a disgustingly rich man. Um, and they are, you know, questions around, you know, his, his approach to taxes, if there's loopholes he can find, you know, you know, he takes them. But I was speaking to a, a friend about um, Jeff Bezos the other week, and, and they said that they they didn't see a problem with it because, you know, even though he's a very uh, rich man, he provides a service that in his own way helps a lot of people. Um, they pose the argument that, you know, if if their child all of a sudden needed, you know, new shoes for school tomorrow, they could use his service and they could acquire them within, you know, hours. It could be at their door the next day. And that, you know, in that way that he does help a lot of people. Where do you weigh in on, on Jeff Bezos? And in his case, is what he does in terms of, tax, even though it's legal, is that immoral? Um, I, I don't think we should, you know, try to cut corners with tax. Mm. I think uh, taxation is a responsibility that everybody should pay. We all use government services. We all need uh, things that the government provides. And um, I think we should not feel that this is money that we have to try and somehow uh, evade paying, but rather that we should uh, should pay up as uh, you know our, our share of it, and and that share should be um, not I should say artificially reduced by clever tax dodgers. Um, on the other hand, you know, and, and there are other things you could criticise Jeff Bezos for. Um, there are questions about. Uh, what workers are paid um, in, in uh, working for Amazon, and you know perhaps that could be changed too. Um, and the third thing I would say is that you know he 
even if you accept that Amazon does provide valuable services, and I agree with that, I think it does. I think it's made various things much more accessible to people. Um, we still have to ask, what is he doing with his money? Now, he has become more sensitive, perhaps, to the criticism that he had in the past not been donating much of it to good causes. And he has started donating to issues like climate change, for example, which I agree is a very important issue. Um, but I think it's, it's still a, a much smaller fraction of his wealth than um, Buffett or Gates or uh, Moscovitz and Tuna have um, donated. So I'd like to see him doing much more. Uh, and I'd like to see him thinking perhaps more carefully about how it does the most good. There may be people listening to this right now and they're thinking, Peter, Lewis, I'm not a billionaire. I work 40 hours a week. I earn minimum wage. You know, I, I can make ends meet, but I can barely enjoy my life more so than that. What are the questions that you would encourage these people to ponder and ask themselves? Well, I would, uh, I would invite them to ask themselves, so... Am I spending money on things that I just don't need? And uh, you know, that's where you started off with the, the bottled water, right? Well, if you live in a country where safe drinking water comes out of the tap for free, then you don't need to buy bottled water. Uh, so, you know, you could, you, could, you could put that aside and you could say, okay, so I'll stop buying bottled water and maybe, you know, sodas and things as well. Um, and I'll see how much that adds up to at the end of the month and I'll donate that some uh, effective charity uh, and you know then you obviously you'll get by just as well as you did before so um, and I think I, you know, I can't speak for everyone but I think a lot of people will say that they will feel good about what they're doing they'll, they'll feel better about their lives because they know they are contributing to making the world a better place and, and there's psychological research that you know, shows that people who are generous are more satisfied with their lives. So I don't think it's really uh, costing them in, in that sense. Uh, now, there may be some people who will say, no, you know, I don't earn enough to buy bottled water. I always drink water that comes out of the tap. Um, and I don't really have other uh, friv frivolous luxuries that I spend money on either. So, okay, I mean, not everybody can donate to um, significantly. You, you may have some time you can donate perhaps, um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm really pitching this at people who do spend some money on things that there's no way of arguing that they really need these things. As we move into uh, the next topic, more so around the Penguin Great Ideas release of the book, uh, Why Vegan? I'll first ask, is it any less morally significant for animals to suffer than humans? And if no, why do you think that most people in the world don't see it that way? So my answer is, if the suffering is similar, then it's not more significant that it's occurring in a human than a non-human. Now, people may say, well, how can it be similar, right? Humans have this greater awareness of themselves, greater self-awareness. They uh, anticipate the future more than non-human animals do. Uh, they have memories maybe that are different from those of non-human animals. 
Um, and very often that's true, although you know, sometimes we exaggerate the differences and it may depend on what the non-human animal is. But there are some humans who don't have this ability to predict the future or these clear memories. Um, and in fact, that's all of us when we're, let's say, less than three months old. You know, we, we don't have language. Um, we you know, clearly don't know very much about what's going on, but we do have a nervous system. We do suffer. You know, we suffer if we're hungry. We suffer if we're cold. Um, we suffer if somebody stands on our fingers accidentally. Uh, so think about those kinds of suffering in a human being, like a, a very young human being. Um, and then think about similar suffering in a non-human animal who can also be hungry, cold, uh, can have, well, maybe not fingers, but you know, poor, trodden on. Uh, um, and I think that kind of suffering is really uh, equivalent. You know, it matters just as much. And again, I'm assuming that there's no lasting injury that is going to affect the child for the rest of the child's life. But um, let's say it's a, it's a physical pain, which is going to be there for a few minutes or even hours, and then we'll go. Um, I think it's just as significant whether it happens to a human or an animal. Um, now, you said, well, why don't we think that? I think the answer to that is, is fairly obvious. You know, we are familiar with in-group, out-group distinctions in human history. And fortunately, many of them we now reject. Right? But you know, if you had asked um, a white American living in Mississippi in 1820, let's say, um, do you think the suffering of, well, I won't use the word they will use, but um, the suffering of an African-American, let's say we would use that to say, um, is as important or significant as the suffering of a white person, they would also answer no um, without much thought. And uh, I think that, you know, in that case we have as racism and we now reject that, although we know racism still exists, of course, in our society. Um, but, you know, when we talk about it, we, we, most decent people don't own up to saying, yes, I think the suffering of a person of my race matters a lot more than the similar suffering of a person of another race. Um, so I think what goes on between humans and animals is analogous. It's not identical, but um, there's an in-group, a powerful in-group, um, which gives itself a higher moral status and attributes more significance to what happens to it than it attributes to the ad group. And in this case, the in-group is all human beings and the ad group is all non-human sentient animals. What would you, so the anti, the anti-vegan, the people who oppose the vegan approach, they're very, you know, very loud and passionate people. And you hear all these arguments they throw, they typically tend to throw the same arguments, but what would you say to those people that say things such as, well, you know, a lion doesn't think twice about, you know, slaughtering a gazelle or these are, this is the way it's always been or these, these sort of cliche arguments. What would you say to those people that offer that approach? Well, you know, this is the way it's always been is an argument that has been used in other cases where we now certainly <laughs> emphatically reject it. Right. Um, I mean, the idea, for example, that, men lead and lead groups and, and make decisions and that women are excluded. You don't have to go very far back. You know, you're in the United Kingdom, right? You, you, you only have to go back to the mid 19th century um, and women didn't have the vote. Um, John Stuart Mill put a 
motion to parliament in, I don't know exactly when, 1865, something like that maybe, um, that uh, voting reform should, should remove the word man and replace it with the word person. Um, and he knew it was not going to pass. Uh, I mean, it didn't. It, he was quite surprised that it got 60 or 70 votes, I think. Um, so, you know, it was just automatically assumed that, uh, well, look, it's always been the way that men have led societies and women don't. Um, and that was supposed to be justification. Now, we don't think that way anymore. Uh, and similarly, I think the fact that something has always been this way, that, you know, we've eaten meat, let's say, which is not completely true of all societies and all times, but it's certainly true of most humans at most times. Um, uh, that's no justification for saying that it should continue to be that way, especially if we now have the knowledge and the ability to nourish ourselves well from products not using animals. And if we know that the commercial methods of producing animal foods uh, are ruthless and don't really consider the interests of animals, you know, except where you have to or they'll die and you won't make a profit. Um, so, uh, you know, and then we haven't even talked about the climate effects of, of, of animal products. So, you know, there's a whole lot of things that we now know that people didn't know and opportunities we have that people didn't know. Uh, and I think that changes things. And I think we shouldn't rely on this argument that it's always been like this because um, maybe, it, maybe it has been like this, but it's certainly time to change it and it's important to change it. So in a hypothetical world in which humans didn't have any other viable food source where you know, the, we, we couldn't get the correct nourishment from our environment, from our surroundings like plants, in that case, would the slaughtering and eating of animals be justified? I think you could argue that if we were going to die without it, we would be justified in doing that. Um, uh, yes, obviously we still ought to do it in the most humane way possible in ways that give the animals good lives, not the squalid confined lives of animals in factory farms today, um, but uh, it gives them good lives and then kills them painlessly without them having foreknowledge or awareness of what's gonna happen to them. Um, I think we could argue that that was defensible. Uh, if we really needed it to survive ourselves. I was, I was reading an argument online this morning that, that says that chimpanzees are comparable to three-year-old humans in their capacity for self-awareness, problem-solving, their emotional lives, and that some ask, how can we assign rights to, or the basic rights to children, but not to these chimpanzees and how would you weigh in on that uh you know I, I think that's that's essentially correct that um it's it's not really justified to say humans have rights you know we talk about human rights a lot um uh but humans have rights but no non-human animal has these rights uh, i think we should extend uh, basic rights to non-human animals and a good place to start if we're doing this would be chimpanzees or chimpanzees and bonobos and great apes, and maybe orangutans, because these are the animals not only that we are most closely related to in, in genetic terms, but also the animals who are most like us in terms of their capacities to, to think, uh, their strong emotional bonds with other members of their group, 
they're clearly, you know, living with certain long-term uh, expectations of things that are happening and the memories of the past. Um, you know, you only have to read the wonderful studies by Jane Goodall and um, many others since, uh, and not only about chimpanzees, but about other great apes. Uh, and you can see that, that their lives do resemble ours more closely than many people have thought. So um, I think to try to narrow the gulf between humans and non-human animals, uh, that's something we ought to do. And maybe starting with the great apes is a good way to do that, um, to show that you know, there's, there's really close connections. Um, when, when, we when we talk about humans on the one hand and then animals on the other, we're sort of implying that there's this big gulf between humans and all animals. But in fact, we're much more closely related to a chimpanzee than a chimpanzee is to a dog uh, in, in genetic terms. So um, it's not like there's all humans here and all non-human animals there. It's like there's, there's a whole continuum of relationships and to some extent a continuum of cognitive abilities, but more important still is the capacity to suffer and to feel pain and to enjoy their lives. Um, which uh, a, a very large number of animals have. At the top of the conversation, I pointed out that some people regard you as you know, an, an extremely influential philosopher. And, and a lot of people I've seen online attribute the, the moral awakening moment to reading your work. Do you remember personally for you a moment or, or, or an event that happened that flipped that switch for you? Well, certainly a crucial event in my, um, not, not, not only my ethical thinking, but also in my decision to actually live according to my ethical ideas, well, uh, occurred when I was a graduate student um, at Oxford University in 1970. So um, I was 24 years old already at this point. Um, and uh, I... As I say, I was studying philosophy, I was interested in ethics, um, but purely by chance, I got into a conversation after a class with a Canadian graduate student who suggested we continue the conversation over lunch. Um, he invited me to Balliol, the college that he was at. And we went in for lunch and there was a choice of two dishes. There was uh, one hot dish and a salad plate. And the hot dish was spaghetti uh, with a kind of brown sauce poured over it. So uh, Richard Keshin, as this student uh, was, um, asked if there was meat in the spaghetti sauce. And when he was told there was, he took the salad plate. Um, so I, I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't going to be satisfied with a cold salad. I wanted a hot dish. So I, I took the spaghetti and we continued our conversation about whatever it was. Um, and, but then eventually when that petered out, I said, so what's your problem with meat? Now, you know, you, you have to think back to the early 1970s, um, when there were very, very few vegetarians around. Um, and most of the vegetarians who were around, um, they might have religious reasons. They might be a Hindu, for example. Um, they might be an absolute pacifist who thought all killing was wrong, or they might think that meat was bad for your health. Um, and I don't think I would have responded to any of those reasons, right? I was not gonna be a pacifist because I do think you have to defend yourself sometimes if you're attacked, for example, it was it was right to defend yourself against Nazism in the Second World War. Um, I certainly not a Hindu, um, and uh, I, you know, 
I don't think that, and it may, maybe it's true that most people eat too much meat and too many animal products for their health, but I don't think eating modest amounts of meat is really going to be that damaging to your health. Um, but Richard didn't say any of those things. Um, he said, so I don't think it's right to treat the animals the way we're treating them in order to turn them into meat. And I really didn't know very much about this. Right? And, and as I say, you know, people, younger people listening to this today have to think themselves back to a, a very different time period um, because I didn't know about factory farms at all. I still imagined that the animals I was eating had had good lives out in the fields and then eventually had been rounded up, trucked to slaughter and killed. And I knew that, you know, that was a, a bad thing. I'd followed, been on the road behind trucks going to slaughter and you could see the animals packed together. It looked horrible. But I thought, you know, well, they've had good lives and now having a few bad hours and they'll be dead. Um, so I didn't really think that it was a, you know, a whole lifetime of, of bad lives that they were having. But um, Richard said, oh, you, you know, you ought to learn more about this. Um, and he mentioned the one book that had been written at this time, a book by Ruth Harrison called Animal Machines. Um, and it was very persuasive. I, I found, you know, it's now somewhat dated, but I think it would still be persuasive if you pick it up. Um, that essentially, um, I think uh, Ruth Harrison had a line that went something like, cruelty is acknowledged only when profitability is effective. So, you know, you can do anything, anything that you can do to an animal that won't harm productivity is going to be done. Um, and certainly it was, it, that's how it was in 1970. And largely it's still how it is, although there have been some laws passed in the European Union and the UK um, to restrict some of the practices that I criticized in the first edition of Animal Liberation. And I should say it was that conversation that led me after about another five years to write um, Animal Liberation. So, so that was a turning point for me, in, certainly in terms of what I was eating, in terms of putting ethics into practice in my life. Um, and it affected you know, other things as well, I think. Um, it affected, you know, it was around that time I wrote the article about the drowning pond, uh, drowning child in the pond in 1971, it was published in 72. So you can see that things are going on during my graduate years at Oxford um, that are leading me to make ethics more applied um, and also make it more challenging, more demanding, uh, and to put it into practice in my own life. You've uh, edited a forthcoming edition of The Golden Ass, the only surviving Roman novel in its entirety. Um, I believe when this podcast is, that will already be released. Um, this is something I'm really looking forward to because I've, I've, I've never read it. I've got no knowledge of it. So I'm really looking forward to, to when this comes out so I can check it out for the first time. But for those who are in the similar position to me where they, they're unaware of the work, can you give us maybe one important lesson, theme or takeaway from this work uh, that you'd like to share and make people aware of? Yeah, the, the theme following up what we were just talking about is um, what is life like for a donkey? Um, and uh, so a donkey in Roman times was regarded as a rather lowly creature. You know, they were not as noble as horses, um, uh, and, but they were worked very hard and they were mistreated in various kinds of ways. Um, and this novel is about a man who is turned into a donkey and therefore experiences the life of a donkey 
and describes, you know, in his own times, this is written in the second century of the common era, uh, so in the, the Roman Empire uh, heyday, um, and he describes a lot of things that happen, you know, not just being beaten to make donkeys carry heavy loads up steep mountains, um, being tormented for fun by, um, you know, young boys, for example, um, but also, um, and in a way, this is more analogous to what I was talking about, what we do to animals in factory farms today, um, essentially being a slave turning a mill. So growing the corn, um, they used animals, donkeys and horses uh, to turn, to walk endlessly in circles um, inside in a dark place. Um, they put blinkers on them so they wouldn't be distracted or walk anywhere else. They beat them if they didn't walk and uh, turn the mill. Um, and then they, when they'd done that, they'd locked them away for, uh, and gave them you know, just enough food to keep them working. So, you know, here is an animal being exploited as if it were just a machine to make profits for the miller. Um, and it, there were also slaves in these mills as well. So you get a vivid picture of the human slaves and the animal slaves being exploited together. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's the kind of lesson you asked about that people should take away. But I don't want people to get the idea this is going to be a grim read. Um, in fact, it's a, it's a very funny book. Um, there's lots of amusing things that happen. It's a kind of adventurous book because the donkey is in great peril at various moments and manages to escape. Um, and it's also quite an erotic book because there are sex scenes in it as well, which I won't describe now, but your uh, um, listeners can explore for themselves. So um, I think it's a great read. And you know, I also, um, despite my interest in animals, um, had not read it until uh, not that many years ago. Um, and when I did read it, I thought, um, this work ought to be better known. Uh, but, but part of the obstacle to it being well known was that it had a lot of digressions. Um, the donkey with the big ears the donkey have overheard a lot of stories. Um, and so the donkey retells all these stories. Some of them are interesting, but um, you lose the thread of the main narrative, I thought. So I thought this needs an addition that prunes away these digressions and lets the kind of ad adventures of the donkey really stand out at the center. Um, and that's what my edition does. Um, I got a great translator to do a lively, fresh, modern translation, uh, Professor Ellen Finkelpel. Um, and I got uh, a couple of uh, uh, illustrators, um, Russian sisters, uh, who to do a great set of illustrations for it as well. So I'm really happy with the way it's come out. It's probably the most entertaining book that I've written for many years. I didn't write it, of course, but I've produced for many years. I look forward to it. I look forward to it. Look, I've got three final questions for you today that we ask every guest that comes on the show. The first one, um, we've cited a lot of your books today. We've mentioned that they've had you know, a big impact on other people's lives. You've, you've mentioned one already, but can you give us maybe two books, two or three books that have had a major impact on your life? On my own life? Ah, well, I've already mentioned Ruth yeah. Harrison's Animal Machines, which had a very big impact. Um, so, and I've, all, I've talked a bit about evolution um, and the importance of understanding evolution in terms of um, understanding how we are as we are. So, you know, there, there's, there's different books you could look at there. I want to give credit to Richard Dawkins' uh, work on evolution, starting off with The Selfish Gene. And of course, there's A Blind Watchmaker as well um, and other books, uh, which I think put this out very well. Um, 
But ultimately, of course, you have to go back to Charles Darwin, and particularly, I, although he wrote The Origin of Species first, for its application to humans, um, The Descent of Man is still a wonderful book and still a, a terrific read. So that's another good one. Um, I'd also like to mention um, uh, Stephen Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, which has been somewhat criticized. Um, but I think even if there are particular claims that you can object to, um, I think still does a valuable service in indicating that, you know, it's not all doom and gloom. We've actually made great progress in the world in the past century or so. There are, as a, you know, never, there've never been as high a proportion of the world's population not in poverty, living uh, as, as there is now. Maybe I shouldn't say now because COVID certainly hasn't helped, but as there was in 2019, let's say, and let's hope we'll get back to that. Um, so, you know, uh, never been as many people able to read and write, uh, never as many people able to get some healthcare, all of those things. So I think that's uh, Pinker's book is a very valuable antidote to the kind of doom and gloom view. I apologize. The last two questions I have may be quite hard for a philosopher to answer. Uh, the first one is, if, you, if every person on the planet was tuned into the same frequency and you were given the opportunity to broadcast one message or one particular lesson that you would love every person on the planet to hear just once, what would Peter Singer's message to the world be? So if I have to just put this in a sentence, I would say, think about the consequences of your choices. Um, choices of what to eat, choices of what you do with your resources, choices of how you live. Think about them for everyone affected by your actions, all sentient beings now and into the future as far as we can predict what the future consequences of those actions will be. I love it. The last question, our answers to this one range from everything from family, loved ones, friends, to their work, to their mission. And again, I imagine this is probably a hard one for you to answer. It's probably a philosopher's life work. But for Peter Singer, what makes a life worth living? Uh, I find a life worth living if you enjoy your life, you you know, you know, happiness is important and worth living is one where you get that happiness or at least some of it out of knowing that you've lived a good life in terms of your values and in terms of making the world as good a place as you possibly can. Beautiful. We've mentioned um, your work, your, your books, uh, your organisation, Please uh, let these guys know where they can find out more about those projects and find yourself. Sure. Well, I do have a, a website, which is petersinger.info, I-N-F-O. Um, you can find out more about what I'm writing, what I've been doing, um, future events there. Uh, please also go to thelifeyoucansave.org, which is the charity, as you mentioned, that I founded. Uh, and... There you can download a copy of the book, The Life You Can Save, the updated edition, absolutely free, either as an ebook or as an audio book. And the audio book is read by celebrities, including Stephen Fry, um, Kristen Bell, Paul Simon, uh, so some familiar people. 
uh, and they all donated their services to because they believe in the book. Uh, so that's the uh, that's the second place that I would like you to go. Um, and if you're interested in uh, animal charities and finding out what are the, the best animal charities, um, Animal Charity Evaluators does something for animal charities, a bit like what The Life You Can Save does for um, human charities. Um, and there's one more thing that I'll mention that we haven't talked about. Um, I'm concerned about the narrowing of uh, freedom of discussion um, and the fact that some people may be intimidated from publishing their ideas because of the kind of harassment uh, that has been around. Um, so I uh, co-founded a journal called the Journal of Controversial Ideas, um, which is about to publish the first issue. In fact, it may be, for all I know, it's going up as we're speaking, because I'm not the one actually putting the articles online, but it certainly should be up, if not today, then tomorrow. So you go to uh, journalofcontroversialideas.org and, and have a look at the first issue if you're curious about that project. That sounds amazing. I will link all um, the websites and, and work you mentioned there in the show notes of this episode so everyone can go and find them easily. Peter, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a, an absolute honor to speak to you and it's a conversation that um, has, has got me thinking and will leave me a lot to think about. So thank you so much for bringing the value to the podcast today. You're very welcome, Lewis, and thanks for the opportunity to speak to all your viewers and listeners. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Freedom Pact podcast. We'll be back with another episode on Friday. Until then, please come and join us over on YouTube where all these podcasts, plus highlights of our best bits, are uploaded to YouTube in video format. The best way you can support the show is to come on over and subscribe to us on that platform. Drop a comment on the videos. Let us know what you thought of them and we would love to interact with you. So please come and join us over on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash freedom pact. Until next time, thank you so much for listening.